Welcome to The Five, a podcast built to inform nonprofits about critical functions that will improve their organization. I'm your host, Eric Morcheski, CEO and co-founder of Nimble Strategies. We are bringing The Five to you as a part of our company's five-year anniversary celebration with thought leaders from across the country. Welcome to The Five. So I'm here today with Steve Mano of CCS Fundraising. Steve is the managing director of uh, CCS Fundraising St. Louis office. Steve, tell us a little bit about your background. You you guys obviously work with a ton yeah. of clients. You, you've really probably grown into this role through years of experience. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks, Eric, for having me as part of this podcast. It's really just a terrific thing to do. It, we hope and believe it'll be a value to uh, your nonprofit clients and friends across our community. Um, I've been involved with CCS for 25 years in every capacity from in, an entry-level director to running and managing campaigns uh, for about a dozen years to then moving into more of the executive leadership of the firm. We're a generalist firm and I'm a generalist in my practice, so I work across all sectors of the nonprofit world, whether it be environment, healthcare, social service, everything across the spectrum. And certainly uh, campaigns are a big area of our focus and really help really find transformational philanthropy for our client partners and work with institutions to elevate philanthropy long-term. But you know, my role is to work with our client partners to, to lead them at those important moments they bring us in for whatever they may be. And we've had the great pleasure of working together with clients before, um, also what, where I was your client. So I always appreciate sure. knowing firsthand how you operate. But tell us a little bit about CCS as well. So CCS is a 75-year-old global philanthropic services firm. At the heart and soul of what we do is plan and manage transformational initiatives. As I mentioned, we're a generalist firm. So if you were to overlay Giving USA with our upward of 600 client partners around the world, it would look very similar. It's a heavy focus on social service, education, healthcare, faith-based causes, to name a few. Um, in any given year, we, wave it, we raise an excess of $2 billion for our client partners. We'll do, in terms of campaign planning studies, hundreds that'll yield upward of 10,000 individual strategic conversations. But yet we also have practice areas that focus on growing pain points in, in important areas of nonprofits, such as CRM system management and change. Gift planning, really the capture of non-cash assets, not just plan giving, but also a plan giving practice group and areas of sector expertise. And here in our community, you know, we've been involved as a firm for over 60 years. And at my last check over the past 30 years, we've helped our client partners raise well in excess of $600 million. So really need to be part of that landscape, both here as part of a larger international firm. You guys have raised a lot of money throughout the world and, and definitely in St. Louis as well. So kudos to you for helping all those organizations that so needed that assistance. So we're here today to talk a little bit about the core focuses of philanthropy via capital campaigns. So tell us a little bit, what does that mean to you? What is the core focus of philanthropy, especially via capital campaigns? What does that look like in your mind and, and how does that play out for your clients? Well, looking at that, it's it really is five things. And what are those foundational building blocks of any fundraising initiative, but especially an extraordinary campaign? How do you properly plan one? In other words, measuring before you cut. What's the best way to meaningfully engage your board of directors? 
Because it's such an important topic to the evolution of philanthropy, where does gift planning play a role? Does it play a role? And can it play a role? Again, that capture of non-cash assets. And having a proper focus on your various constituencies, kind of distinguishing how and when to engage individuals, businesses, foundations. Those would be really core areas that we look at in any given day with any given partnership. It's great. All of those, I think, get lost from time to time. So it, it's nice to have someone that can boil that down to five key five key functions. So let's talk about those five then uh, of being core focuses, core foundational pillars for the capital campaigns. Start from the top and take us through each of those pieces and, and what their value is and what they mean to the organization. And one of the things I think about these, these fundamental building blocks is they apply to any nonprofit, big and small. My clients at Forest Park Forever or St. Louis Zoo, or it could be a, a small Catholic parish in rural Missouri. They all apply. And when you do a campaign, you do it for many reasons. So this is part of our thinking. But one of the reasons I love them is when you have a well-run campaign, that's when you most often see transformational change for an organization. And a lot of the reasons we look at these are, well, we have a strategic plan, we need to fund it. We want to advance big ideas. And that big idea is a new idea, forward-looking idea for us. How do we get and attract larger gifts? What is that opportunity that we just didn't have before? We can tell a big story and share needs. We form a unified vision across the organization and catalyze you know, future growth. And there's really four key pillars of any campaign. And this could be capital. One could look at it for endowment or even programmatic. These are key kind of tactics. A well-crafted case for support with a strong communication plan. Leadership, a dynamic group of leaders, including so the, the staff of that institution, the executive leadership of that institution, trustees, and a body of campaign leaders to advance the initiative. Prospects. Who is our known prospect audience? Who is our aspirational prospect audience with bespoke cultivation strategies tailored to these prospects, person by person, entity by entity, and a plan, a very detailed campaign plan complete with you know, clear timelines, activity benchmarks, forecast goals that's looked at with regularity and rigor, ergo the business plan for a campaign. I really like that. So- what is involved in planning a campaign from your perspective? What does that business plan look like? You bet. Well, the way to get there is what we all know and love, the feasibility study or the campaign planning study. Frankly, I'm not fond of the word feasibility, even though it's nomenclature. The reason why is it connotes check and see. Will this actually work? And 9.5 out of 10 times, of course, it'll work. The institution is going down a path informed by its probably strategic plan. So I look at more as a campaign planning study. And we believe in a very comprehensive approach. Because if you think about it, like during a study, you're creating a plan, but you're through these, especially the interviews, you're cultivating education and engaging your most likely donors. And it, it, we always recommend doing this kind of before getting into the earnest work of the campaign, cutting or excuse me, measuring before we cut versus cutting before we measure. However, it isn't uncommon for mid-campaign assessments to take place too when some recalibration is, is necessary. And we want something that's very holistic. So we look at it from the data analytics side 
and then the anecdotal side. Analytics are a huge part of our work, no matter the organization. Doing at the very least well screening and, and RFM analysis. But we have a great practice group dedicated to very substantial modeling, doing data analytics and modeling on an institution's database to unearth new prospects that both can happen with annual and capital long term, plan giving, and other sources of revenue, right down to even rebalancing portfolios. But when you do the, the campaign study, we believe in a large number of personal private interviews because we get a lot of feedback. We get insights from these conversations and dive into the data that helps inform the plan for a campaign. Like, What does a good study do? Well, yes, it tells you what is that financial goal. How is, where is our case resonant? But you're methodically introducing the campaign dynamic. You're promoting the plans beyond that nucleus group of leaders. You're sequencing requests. You're accelerating the journey. You're building some excitement and momentum. But you also unearth any areas of opportunity, challenges, questions, things on people's mind. And you can mitigate risk that way. And you really are engaging people from the outset, which is meaningful. We also believe in doing an electronic survey, really to the totality of an organization's database, and the tool that we, we use is, is one that gives us actionable data, not just feel-good data. So you are getting this from a, a large body. One particular organization I'm wrapping up a study with, you know, we have over 1,000 respondents to the e-survey, layering that on top of 70 interviews. So it's a lot of data to help them make decisions. And I think what you also find is that leaders, the boards, they have a good deal of comfort and confidence moving into initiative that they've done so in a very holistic and meaningful way. It's not just one leg. We believe in operating all three legs of that stool. And you are prepared to move forward with a great deal of data, informed, eyes wide open with individuals and organizations who are already engaged and listened to. I think that's great. And I think you touched on your next key point, which that leadership engaging your board. How are you finding the best tactics for keeping that board and leadership engaged or in scenarios where you have to go back to them and say, you don't have the right board, engaging the right board? Yeah. And sometimes that is the case. But, you know, a nonprofit's commitment to philanthropy starts with the board. And because of that, it's no surprise that our most successful clients have the right leadership on their board and are actively engaging those leaders in impactful ways. Now, of course, every trustee is not comfortable doing the same thing. So trying to understand what is their comfort level? Where would they like to be involved? How would they like to be involved? But whether an organization is in a campaign or not, board members should be you know, moving the mission of the organization forward. And they can do that with simplicity. Like, what are we asking the board to do? What is the history of what a trustee has been doing? Making a personal gift. That's just commensurate with their ability and leadership. And obviously, 100% participation should always be an expectation. Not necessarily some of the other things, but are they all given? Are they all vested when they're saying this is a meaningful organization to me to lead by example? That they serve as a, an external face, if you will, and add credibility. They can tell the story. They can tell the mission impact. To potentially be a connector by opening doors and find pathways to natural partners, whether they're continuing that relationship or creating a new relationship, but they're natural to make those connections. Some even help with making gift requests. 
our benchmark reports show that organizations that utilize volunteers to ask for gifts saw a gift increase of 18%. And that's pretty sizable. Why not have your best advocates be out there advocating? But during the campaigns, a lot of organizations do rely on board members to help elevate the campaign story. And they do so to natural communities and constituencies. They do so where they have comfort and confidence. And it's pretty common to select you know, board members to serve on a committee. We're not saying yoke any sort of campaign on the board, but to invite them to take a role and see what they have comfort and confidence with in. They're willing to learn and willing to do. Some of the best trustees that we've worked with are the ones that say, I haven't done this before. I love this place. I am willing to lean in, help me, guide me, and they excel. I think it's a good point. A few things in there that you said that I really liked. I think identifying the interest of the board member and their willingness because you can't force someone to go be a fundraiser. If you do, it's not going to end well for you. It's not going to end well for them. You have to understand whether someone is interested in giving, interested in asking, interested in doing both, interested in none of the above, which then there's a different question that needs to be asked. But I think it's one of those things that so often organizations fail to understand that you do need all of those players involved, maybe not the people who won't do anything, but everyone else involved, because you're not going to get it all done through just board donations. You're not going to get it done without the board making donations. So you're going to have to interact everyone together to make sure that they're really, really maximizing the capacity. of And that probably gets us well into gift planning. So now that you've you've engaged your board, you've engaged, you know, the community through your plan. How do you look at gift planning in this? Well, you know, it used to be that the gift planning was relegated to just plan giving. How do we look at the plan giving program? How do we get a codicil? We're not going to think about it. We don't think about it. We don't have personnel. Very honest and fair rationale. We just, we need to focus on dollars in the door and hope for it to come in over the transom. But now what's really come to the fore the past couple of years is how do we look at gifts and non-cash assets? Heck, Eric, even in the study that we did, we didn't ask any questions about non-cash assets. That wasn't in the calculus at that point. We do now. So if we're every planning study that 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 I conduct, at least, we talk about the opportunity to use non-cash assets. I learned this after doing a deep dive assessment for a foundation and unearthing potential additional investment in that foundation that would increase its corpus by well in excess of 50%. And if you look at studies over the past couple of years, where has some of the largest growth been in philanthropy? And it's been giving of the required minimum distribution from the IRA and people using donor advised funds because of all that. And, you know, this gift planning function, it's really integral to an important and important to an organization's long term stability. And they can make that connection because more individuals can make significant gifts than if they're only relegated to consider cash. As an indication, just with the bequest, the most simple, in 2022, bequests accounted for 9% of all total charitable giving in the US. And that's a 2.3 increase in current dollars over the previous year. Planned giving's on the rise. More importantly, the uh, um, the more organizations put a focus on it, a small spotlight on it, you see that go so much quicker because the legacy gift 
is 252% greater than the average annual gifts. And that just underscores the fact that people may not have the ability to make that big gift today, but they're able to leave it into the future. A neat other fact, a feature is that economic conditions can impact land giving. This is what's great. So some people talk about economic uncertainty. What does the economy bring? The subsequent election, does all that create instability? Well, one thing to consider is Donors may be less inclined to make financial commitments, and I'm saying this on the macro, that draw on their cash and disposable income or liquidate securities in an uncertain market. So looking at major gifts of assets could be more attractive. In other words, you have several cash value life insurance policies. Did you know you could sell that and donate the cash? Or look at other retained estates for real estate that you may have. And people haven't contemplated that. Or at the very least, it's interesting. They've contemplated these things to say they're alma mater. Because SLU, Wash U, they're very sophisticated at this. But to say they're nonprofit of choice, they haven't. But there's an opportunity to. And I think it's a good point. We do have a client right now going through a property transfer. And it can also be a big burden on a smaller organization to go through that property transfer process. You know, in the end, hopefully the result is good, but making sure everything is in order ahead of time is uh, is definitely key in that case, because if there's anyone that may lay claim to that property or anything else, um, it can be a very difficult and cumbersome process for organizations. So I, I think to your point of maybe dipping your toe in, but also making sure that you're following the right steps and the right processes ahead of time, because you don't want to get to the point where that gift is coming through. Right and find out that you've got to go to court to really finish off. The attorneys are never cheap. <laughs> oh, it erodes that nonprofit's experience. More yeah. so, and just to even underscore that in, in terms of doing it in a meaningful way, there's a 75% increase in annual giving from donors after they commit a legacy gift. Investment, protecting an investment. And another misstep is the time to talk to a potential legacy donor it's like in their early 50s, because 60s and 70s, it's too late. And I've been told point blank in study interviews, those plans have been fixed for years. Is there any opportunity to modify those plans? Unfortunately not, because it all isn't tied up in a legal matter. Mm -hmm. And there's not much you can do there because they're right there. They're your annual donors. You know, the IRA rollover, and it's pretty straightforward. But it's just having the, the knowledge to collect it and the comfort and confidence uh, to talk about it. And just, you can look at Fidelity Charitable and their reports that come out, it, it increases every year. Those are some good points on the gift planning. And I think kind of closing us out, then you talked about focusing yeah. on different constituencies. So yep. tell me a little bit about how you think about this, what you look sure. at for these different constituencies and what organizations can do to make sure they're uncovering all of their constituencies. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good point. And what you want to do is do so in kind of a focused, thoughtful way as we do with anything. So it's like our development operations should have an annual fundraising plan for individuals, companies, or businesses, and foundations. It maps out your entire year, and it's regularly updated. And that allows you to be nimble and to customize messaging for the best possible outcome. Now, interestingly, if we look at the philanthropic you know, flow, the total number of individual donors last year declined 10%. However, 
the donors were down, but the dollars were up year over year. And it, the charitable giving does remain concentrated amongst wealthier donors. And they show, you know, more moderate decreases in charitable giving in uncertain times. And people are continuing to give. So we have to take that constituency into mind that of people looking at who are your best donors and prospects historically, because there's a lot of extraordinary support for various causes that we see every day that comes from that constituency. And it's also the opportunity to turn annual donors into major donors, but it takes some time and tailored cultivation. Uh, a great example is, and it's, it was highly public, there was a great press release, was Jubal Family Foundation giving $15 million to the St. Louis Zoo to rename the new children's zoo, Destination Discovery. It's going to be extraordinary when it opens. And the zoo took real meaningful engagement time to team with the family at multiple levels. So they were able to arrive at that decision in a joyful way. And that will only ensure that relationship is rock solid for years to come. It's just a, a beautifully beaming example. But, you know, if you look at it, it's like we have to segment communication too. that the key, you know, your key audiences are broken out by um, a criteria. Perhaps it's an age demographic. It's an association to the organization, maybe a giving level and maybe an area of interest. For example, most Gen Z and millennial donors cite a desire for a direct mail letter, email, and text message at least monthly compared to a smaller percentage of Gen X and baby boomers. So dialing into their generation is important too. Because let's face it, you know, the, the pandemic changed how everyone looks at philanthropy. And there's significant changes how companies in particular are making philanthropic decisions. We certainly see that here in St. Louis. You know, businesses are often requiring, I should say corporations too, a more detailed application, higher levels of reporting, and 82% reported an increased focus on DEI. And that will be something that we, as, as people seeking those dollars, have to be responsible for. So it's very true that, you know, the work begins once the gift is received. And foundations have begun to alter how they interact with their nonprofit partners to be more collaborative, which is a great thing. And so it's engaging with these foundations between grant cycles is ideal to how organizations can best set them up for success. So you have to think about these are different constituencies. What are some key things that I need to, to know? And of course, foundation giving grew by two and a half uh, percent. And you know, these are some things that we feel very opportunistic with uh, into this next year as well, looking at the consistent trend upward. You know, and we just have some, you know, some good thoughts and insights as we look into the new year, which I'm excited about as well. You've touched a lot on my last question for you already oh. right there. But, you know, what do you see changing or how do you see the evolution of the core focuses of philanthropy via capital campaigns? What do you see happening in the coming years? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, a lot of these fundamental areas, they won't change. I think you're still going to see people give to people and that you will see impact giving that needle move by whatever your organization defines a, as a mega gift. But it's also to be very aware. There's so many tools and reports for us to be aware of the philanthropic dollar flow. Where is it coming from? Where is it going? How is it coming? And that we have to be attuned to how is that economic environment for that individual 
not just the organization, but the individual. So, you know, charitable giving continues to grow steadily, and there's reasons to be optimistic again in 2024. So even as we looked at kind of a year-over-year dip, we may see an adjustment this year because, you know, the, the previous year's Giving USA results were modified into the year. So we'll want to pay attention to that into the middle part uh, of 2024. But we see all these areas as a backdrop for our plans. Great personal generosity focused on those four fundamental areas and the proper investment of resources to, re to capture that philanthropic revenue. That overemphasis on overhead versus return on investment. And I think we're starting to see more nonprofits, you know, look at this and they're putting more dollars in because they recognize it will have that return. But of course, when you look at where the preponderance of philanthropy comes from, it comes from we the people versus, even though they're growing, businesses and foundations. So I think it's like continue to make every or offer every opportunity for people to give to an institution including businesses and foundations by the modalities to the areas they really feel compelled by and never to lose sight of what we know of our constituents. You know, the interest in DEI and those resources, looking at how we're going to talk with our Gen Xers, millennials and boomers to talk with them and to understand that this great wealth transfer, the gift planning is very much not just under the way, but it's accelerating. And philanthropic capacities on the rise for different generations. It was interesting. I found this fact just for millennials. Between 2016 and 22, the average millennial household annual giving increased by 40% from $942 to $1,323. But also, they want to be involved in the nonprofits too, whereas there is a decrease in Gen X and boomers. Just something interesting when you're looking at your portfolio. Don't forget about them as well. I think it's a good point. And I think underlying everything you just said is that philanthropy is relationship-based. No matter what you're doing, no matter how much statistics tell you one thing or another, it still comes down to building relationships and using those relationships to maximize the return for the nonprofit. And I think that's something that too often groups can get away from because they want to follow statistics and not realize that it still comes back to whether you're talking, no matter which generation, you've got to understand right. the individual you're talking to and how to speak to them. And you touched on a few ways that those generations change through that process and, and how one standard outreach platform is not going to be accepted by everyone. Um, and so I think it's a really good thing to keep in mind is that each of these groups, you still have to treat them as an individual. It's interesting too. We, my colleagues went back and looked at some amalgamated feasibility study over time from 2011 to 2022. And the top two reasons why people wanted to give impact, there is an impact to my gift, 99% of all study respondents. And that the belief that those that have the ability should help those less fortunate, 98%. So to say the phrase virtually all are motivated by those is 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 very very factual so it's never to lose sight that that particular prospect donor most likely wants to give because they want to make an impact with you 
think that's a great a great final point to make as a part of this. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll really look forward to everyone getting to experience this talk. Well, thank you, Eric. I appreciate the invitation. We we hope it was helpful. And if it is, I'm always happy to carry on the conversation too for their benefit. Fun to be a part of it. Thank you for listening to The Five. Subscribe to our channel and make sure you catch every episode of The Five and reach out to Nimble Strategies today for help with your nonprofit.